From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. When coal-fired power plants burn coal, what is left over is a toxic ash mixed with water that gets stored in ash ponds. They look pretty much like you'd imagine, huge container pools of slurry and particulates. And environmentalists worry about their potential effects on the ecosystem and drinking water. Georgia Power is on track to quit adding to its ash ponds by sometime next year. How utilities should close their ash ponds is governed by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. But the EPA now wants to hand that responsibility to states, raising questions about how Georgia Power will excavate its remaining dozens of ash ponds and whether the state rules on proper closure are strong enough. Well, the public has until tomorrow to weigh in on the change. GPB's Grant Blankenship has been following the story and is on the line with us from Macon. Hello, Grant. Good morning. So coal ash doesn't sound like something we'd want on our water table. What makes it so dangerous? So coal ash contains a lot of nasty stuff, things like arsenic, boron, lead, mercury, and even more obscure heavy metals like selenium, chromium, uh, nickel. And these chemicals can cause everything from cancer to neurological damage, respiratory illnesses, and in extreme cases, even organ failure. So the whole purpose of coal ash ponds by power plants is to safely store these chemicals far away from people. So can all the waste from ponds that are closing and all potential exposure be contained? I mean, it really depends on how you define contained. So Georgia Power coal ash ponds are not hermetically sealed. So here's how to think about it. Imagine you've got some leftovers. You've stuffed them in a Tupperware container. Georgia Power would like you to believe that that's what they're going to do when they put a big cap of dirt over existing ash ponds. But when the Southern Environmental Law Center and river keepers from the Altamaha, Chattahoochee, Coosa, and Flint river basins analyzed Georgia Power's own data, what they found was that coal ash in many cases is in direct contact with groundwater way down at the bottom of these ash ponds, sometimes 80, 90 feet deep. So that's like having a bunch of holes in your Tupperware, right? Like your casserole is just going to ooze, and that's the last thing you want. So where could the toxins in the coal ash be going? So in the case of Plant McDonough on the Chattahoochee River there in Atlanta, uh, toxins could be getting into the river just upstream of an intake for drinking water. So Georgia Power is monitoring both upstream and downstream of that plant for all these nasty toxins. In the case of Plant Shearer, closer to me, just north of Macon, the toxins are mixing in the same underground aquifer that nearby residents tap for their private wells. That's where they get their drinking water. That aquifer is also very close to the Okmulgee River, so odds are that the stuff's getting in the river as well. So your reporting found that for now, the way that these coal ash ponds are managed falls within EPA guidelines. What would change if the state of Georgia becomes responsible for coal ash ponds? So let's take Plant McDonough on the Chattahoochee as an example. Um, since coal ash toxins could be flowing into surface water there, the Clean Water Act, that's a federal law, that would come into play as things stand now. But if the state were regulating coal ash, Clean Water Act would be off the table. Hmm. And so as it stands now, any permits granted by the EPA, they have to be renewed every five years as well. So if a management plan isn't working out in five years, at least then you'd have a shot to make things right, to course correct. If Georgia does the permitting, a permit is granted for life. Uh, and then there's the fact that the Environmental Protection Division's Solid Waste Management Unit would oversee ash ponds here. So Chris Bowers is an attorney at the Southern Environmental Law Center. He spoke at an EPA hearing on the rules change and questioned whether people who oversee solid waste for Georgia have the personnel to take on this job. Where is the dedicated professional that's dealing with coal ash? Or is one person even enough? 
to police a gigantic utility who has a small army of consultants whose sole job, apparently, is to find ways to skirt their responsibilities. So he does not sound hopeful. So what else would have to happen if the Solid Waste Management Department begins managing coal ash ponds owned by Georgia Power? So you'd see a change in how the public can weigh in on the permitting process. Right now, there's public hearings, just like uh, Mr. Bowers was speaking at with the EPA for these permits. Uh, should solid waste run this, there would be no public hearings. Uh, when your local landfill makes a change to how it's run, there are public hearings. But that wouldn't happen with coal ash ponds. Um, and the landfill containing your household trash, right now, it's more tightly monitored for leakage of the stuff that's in your landfill than Georgia coal ash ponds are now monitored. Grant Blankenship is on the line with us from our Macon Bureau. The EPA is taking public comment on handling of coal ash pond management until tomorrow. He's filling us in on the issues at stake here. Now, we do know how Georgia Power is handling coal ash ponds now and that the company is on track to close them down. How are utilities in other states handling their coal ash pond excavation? And other state legislatures are forcing utilities to dewater their ash ponds, like take all the liquid out, and move the material to dry storage facilities with liners that keep the coal ash out of the soil and the water. You see that in North Carolina with Duke Energy, for instance. Georgia Power is dewatering some of its coal ash ponds and has plans to move that ash to dry storage, but there are large ones that won't be treated that way. And so that's what has environmental advocates upset, is the idea that some of these big coal ash ponds Georgia Power thinks it's enough just to put a, an earthen cap on the top of them and leave the material in contact with groundwater. Well, Grant, you got a look at coal ash ponds from the sky from an airplane. So what did you learn about these containers from the bird's eye view? Well, so we flew over Plant Shearer here near Macon. And, and what you get is a real sense of just how much coal these things burn. There's a, there's a three or four acre field, oval field in front of the plant. It's surrounded by train tracks. And you see these little front-end loaders that look like ants on top of an anthill, and they're responsible for literally pushing the coal in the front of the plant so it can be burned. On the other side, you see where the slurry comes out in this sort of muddy gray mix and flows into the ash pond. Um, the scale of it is really staggering when you see it from the air. Well, Georgia Power is trying to get the Public Service Commission to approve a more than $2 billion rate hike. The increase would be spread out over the next three years, starting early next year. And part of the cost of closing these coal ash ponds is part of its justification. So besides wanting ratepayers to help foot the bill, what does Georgia Power say about the change in regulatory bodies and the closure of the ponds? Well, I asked Georgia Power to talk to me uh, for stories uh, and reporting leading into this, and no one will go on the record for me um, or be recorded on this topic. But in written responses to my questions about the issue, Georgia Power says that Georgia's rules are more stringent than federal rules and that the utility is in full compliance. They also say they have something like 500 monitoring wells in place around ash ponds and that so far their sampling data has not turned up anything unsafe in terms of all those nasty toxins we talked about on the top. But without third-party monitoring of the ponds, an impartial body to look at that data, there's really no guarantee that that's true. So you did mention people have until tomorrow to weigh in on the potential shift in who regulates coal ash ponds. How can yeah. somebody listening to this now voice their views? So the EPA has a website where you can register your feelings about the coal ash changes. The site is bit.ly backslash coal ash GA. That's bit.ly backslash coal ash GA. 
Now, you know, you have been following this issue for some time, and your plan is to put together a a feature more in-depth on the topic. What are you going to be watching as this debate over coal ash ponds continues to unfold? Well, I think there's a lot of story to tell about just what the health ramifications are of of these places. And that's something that I'm going to dig into later. Um, And there's also coal ash ponds that fall outside these new rules that were established by the EPA in 2015 that have been grandfathered into treatment. Um, And those are places that need to be watched out for, too. And that is GPB's Grant Blankenship from our Macon Bureau. He has been reporting on Georgia Power's plan to close its coal ash ponds by sometime next year. Oversight of that process could shift from the EPA to the state of Georgia. Grant, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can find more of Grant's reporting and our coverage of Georgia Power and GPB's series on environmental issues at gpbnews.org. And from burning coal to burning trees, wood chips used to create electricity are called biomass. Georgia's timber industry supports the fuel source and the extra business that it generates. But as GPB's Emily Jones reports, opponents worry that the fuel is not as green as the trees that make it. From several stories up at Exelon's Albany Green Energy Plant, you can see a massive pile of chipped up wood known as biomass. A long conveyor carries it up into the plant. Then we've got this reclaimer screw here that pulls it in, feeds it back into the plant, into the boiler. The biomass burns to make electricity for Georgia Power. Around the corner from the wood pile, a long tube snakes off, carrying leftover steam to power a Procter & Gamble plant. From the top of Albany Green Energy, you can also see trees, just miles and miles of forest in every direction. But we're not just going out grabbing a tree and being able to use that tree. James Lucky is the plant manager. Most of our fuel is coming from treetops and uh, just uh, mill residuals that come from uh, uh, paper mills or something like that. They're burning the stuff that can't be made into lumber or paper products. Advocates in the timber industry say there's plenty of wood waste like that in Georgia that could be made into power. Johnny Bembry owns a tree farm in Pulaski County. He ends up with waste when he thins his trees to prevent fire and disease. Waste from the thinning is uh, it's going to have to be burned. It's either going to be burned in the woods and wasted and, 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 and release carbon in that matter, or it could be burned for energy creation. The Georgia Forestry Association, an industry group, is calling for more power plants around the state that burn biomass. They say it's a good use for leftover wood, cleaner than coal and renewable because you can keep growing trees. They're talking about sustainability in terms of what we replant. Vicki Weeks is with the Dogwood Alliance, which opposes biomass power. And we're talking about we can't afford to, to lose 40 to 50 years in terms of CO2 uptake. Regulators consider biomass generation carbon neutral because new trees soak up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But Weeks points out a key hole in that calculation. It takes time for the trees to grow back. Researchers say it actually takes about 11 years for a new tree to replace one that was cut. Marilyn Brown at Georgia Tech studies biomass. Whether or not that's a problem depends on how threatened you think we are by climate change. I am personally feeling very threatened. We may not have 11 years to wait for trees to grow back, 
Last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change called for rapid and far-reaching changes to reduce carbon emissions by 2030 to get climate change under control. You can't grow a lot of trees between now and then if we rely on biomass plants to large scale over the next decade. But on a small scale, it might make sense. Ultimately, Brown calls biomass an intermediate energy source, not the cheapest or the cleanest, but viable as one piece of a system that has lots of energy sources. That's what the timber industry is calling for, small plants scattered around the state. Andres Villegas heads the Georgia Forestry Association. So we're talking about, um, you know, a few grains of sand on the beach really at the end of the day. The key will be finding a balance that gets the most out of Georgia's trees and still keeps the state's forests growing and soaking up carbon. For GPB News, I'm Emily Jones. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. What do you think of the closure of coal ash ponds in Georgia? What would you want to tell the EPA? Do you think Georgia should burn more trees to make electricity? Tell us what you think. In addition to Facebook, we're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can follow us on Instagram at GPB News or email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. You can also leave us a message. We're at 404-500-9457. Coming up, explore teen dating violence and efforts to stop it through healthier relationships. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Domestic violence and sexual assault are leading causes of injuries for young women and girls over the age of 15 in Georgia. That is according to the state's Department of Public Health. In fact, reports indicate that 30% of Georgia women in that age group will be abused at least once by their partners in their lifetimes. Michelle White is child and youth manager for the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I spoke with her in May about how this impacts teens in their relationships and what falls under the term intimate partner violence. There's a lot of different components related to power and control in an intimate partnership when we think of intimate partner violence. One of the most common is recognizing physical violence in a relationship, but there's also verbal abuse, emotional abuse, um, digital abuse that's happening, especially with the increase in social media. Digital abuse meaning sexting and, or Have, bullying? Absolutely. That would fall under that. Having power and control over someone with using technology, say they're going through your emails, invading your privacy, excessive text messaging, things of that nature. Nature. Also, over 90% of people who experience intimate partner violence experience financial abuse. Mm. Again, that same narrative of having power and control over someone financially. You're preventing someone from going to work. You're stealing um, their resources. You're threatening them um, if they go to their job and things of that nature. So uh, really, when we think of intimate partner violence, it's one person having power and control over another person and trying to maintain that power and control. 
But teen dating violence is looked at as a separate category. So first Mm -hmm. of all, why and how is that defined? Sure. It's a lot to do with age. So with our young people, you know, I always like to tell folks, remember when you were a teenager and really think about when did you first start learning about relationships? Biologically, chronologically, you don't have that much experience with dating, and so that's a lot. That's a big component with teen dating violence. It has to do with our young people. Um, you know, teens are really engaged in independence um, and sometimes less trustful of adults. So that's something that's included with that teen dating violence as well. It's also really difficult to tell if you're experiencing dating violence in that relationship because of those former components. Um, there's a lot of elements of stalking. Um, again, that digital abuse component with social media usage that comes up for teens. A lot of controlling behaviors show up for teens as well in dating violence that sometimes is masked as romantic and protective. Um, Something we've seen a lot with teens is they'll have their partner say, well, I love you so much, so I don't think you should hang out with your friends. You should hang out Mm -hmm. with me. Or I love you so much. You know what? Let me go through your phone. Make sure that everything's okay. So there's this like protectiveness that sometimes is masked as actually power and control in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And mis- misread as affection. Or, Absolutely. Right. A few years ago, the organization Love is Respect ranked Georgia number one in the country for teen dating violence. This research is now considered outdated. Are, are, do you have any numbers on the problem today? It's about one in three. And of course, that's what is reported. And a really big barrier to teen dating violence is it's significantly underreported. A lot of teens are not sharing that they're experiencing dating violence or they're not sure that they're experiencing dating violence and therefore cannot report uh, what they don't know. Um, But what we've seen as of now, it's about one in three teens that do report that they're experiencing dating violence um, share that they are. Who are they likely to report to? Teachers, parents, what? Wouldn't that be great if it was teachers and parents? <laughs> well, <laughs> most, it, most likely it's their peers. Their friends are probably their peer group is the number one folks. If they decide to share that they're in dating violence relationship, they talk to their friends about it. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to dig into what you were talking about, like people may not understand that this is actually abuse. And the Pew Research Center says roughly one third of American teens have been in some sort of relationship. As you said, these are formative relationships But is it likely that a teen who would endure abuse might have suffered or witnessed abuse at home? In other words, it feels normal to them. Absolutely. There's definitely a component where if you've witnessed, um, if you've been exposed to intimate partner violence as a child, um, there's definitely a connection to you experiencing dating violence. And that's not for all folks, but you can definitely connect that to um, experiencing dating violence as you get older. Sometimes for teens, that's the norm. Right. They're learning about relationships in childhood. They may see violence in relationships and may think that's what relationships should be. Again, that's some teens, not all teens, but that's definitely a component of it. So they might not recognize this as abuse. Absolutely. And again, a lot of times what we're seeing, we're getting a lot better now, but a lot of times we see that physical violence is what is defined as violence in a relationship when really there's a lot of more subtle, um, less um, physical components to that. Again, we're talking about verbal abuse mental abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, right? We talk a lot about consent and what goes on between teens. Um, We're talking about sexting is another component of it, not having control over what's going on with your body, being exposed to things you don't want to be exposed to. All of that falls under the umbrella of dating violence. And are those prosecutable offenses, sexting, for example? I believe so. I don't have the exact numbers on that, but I know that that's something um, that People who are under 18 are actually that that impacts um, legally what they're allowed to do.
So what could be some warning signs for teens that they could be in an abusive relationship? Sure. One of the biggest things I like to give big, big picture ways of looking at it. If you notice you're not having freedom in your relationship, you notice you're feeling controlled or that you're not allowed to do something, right? It may start off as someone feeling like they're protecting you and loving you and taking care of you. But if you notice you actually don't have choices in your relationship, um, that you feel like you're walking on eggshells with your partner that you feel if you say something or do something or wear a certain thing, hang out with a certain friend, you know that's going to upset your partner, even though you have the right to do that. Um, notice those signs and trust your gut. If you notice something's happening, our bodies rarely lie to us. Um, so notice in your body, you know, I don't think this is right. Um, and if you feel comfortable, talk to a trusted friend. Ideally, we would love our adults to be more informed on what dating violence is. Uh, I want to say over 80% of adults, when they hear about dating violence, um, they actually don't believe their teens um, when they say that something's going on in their relationship. Hmm. So I would love for our adults out there that are listening, when teens are explaining to you the concerns they're having in their relationship, try your best to listen and take their concerns seriously. So if they aren't speaking with you, as you said, maybe that's the ideal, a parent or a teacher would be informed. What might an adult or a parent be looking for? Sure. What an adult can see is if they notice that their child or their child's friend, again, is not able to have that freedom in their relationship. Um, If they're being isolated, that's a huge component of dating violence and domestic violence, right? They're being removed from their friends. They notice they're, a lot of teens like to use the word ghosting Mm -hmm. their friend. They're not able to be in their friend groups. They're not able to participate in extracurricular activities. They have to devote, and I use that word have to, right, to maintain that relationship and maybe that safety. They have to maintain their relationship with this partner. Partner. If you notice the other partner um, showing up in random places, like you said you were going to the movies, you put that on Twitter, all of a sudden your partner is there, right? Those are elements of stalking. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to notice those behaviors and s- begin to have a conversation with teens about it. Like, hey, I, I noticed such and such. Did you notice that too? Really just trying whatever you can to open that conversation. It'll be up to that teen to disclose. But man, it makes it so much easier when adult notices those elements of dating violence and they can just begin that conversation. And you talked about parents and families modeling relationships. But portrayals of abusive relationships are prevalent in pop culture. We see that in the trailer for the Netflix series You, starring Penn Badgley. I believe in love at first sight. But love is tricky. Is this Joseph? Can we get real for a second? You have questionable taste in friends. I'm going to help you get the life you deserve. I think I might really like him. You can't be serious. I'm not a maybe. I'm the one. There's scary people in the world, Beck. To you. Jealousy got the best of me. My guest is Michelle White, child and youth manager for the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And we're talking about teen dating violence in Georgia. It is something that tends to go under the radar. So, Michelle, what do you hear there? What aspects of abuse? What a great example. I'm so glad you guys found that clip. What we hear and what we see in that particular clip is this romanticized view of being protected by someone. That is an excellent show to watch to talk about dating violence because, again, it portrays a lot of things that we like about being in relationships, being seen, being taken care of, being protected. But uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the show, 
video. I've seen it. There's a lot of elements of what's happening with that perpetrator of violence where he is stalking, um, invading this person's privacy, breaking into her social media accounts without any of her consent or her permission. Again, those are things that you are that are not healthy, um, things that you're not allowed to do in your relationship when it's healthy. So I, it's great to see those things and to call them out. Um, even that actor in particular has said, hey, this is actually not a guy who's following the law. He's got some issues um, because there's, again, that romanticized view of that being protected and taken care of that a lot of us enjoy. Well, maybe those kinds of examples are more compelling to watch, but do we see examples or, or, or can you give us some signs of what a healthy relationship looks like, what a sort of normal amount of control or autonomy would, would look like? Absolutely. So elements of healthy relationships, when your boundaries are respected, is a really big one. When you say something, you stand in it, and the person you're in a relationship with respects that. Um, when you're able to have open and honest communication, where you don't feel like you have to walk on eggshells with someone, when someone respects your consent, especially in sexual spaces, they're not coercing you to do things or manipulating you to do things. Um, and again, when you are allowed to have that independence and freedom in your relationship, something that a lot of us really enjoy is having our independence. And if you notice that you're able to do things, able to live your life, have your friends and your family, and that's not threatened or taken away from you, and you're not being isolated from your support systems. I think we have a lot of, especially for the teenage brain, we know they're not well-developed. They're not sort of connected to the frontal lobe yet in a very direct way. So there is some diminishment of reasoning, or that's not fully developed, let's put it that way. And there's a tendency to believe that dramatic, high drama in relationships is actually a sign of love. Do we get a lot of examples of that? Is that part of the problem? That's such a good question. And I think that there's a lot of sensationalism, especially when you're watching reality TV shows or if you're looking at small clips on Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat that really focus on that element of relationships. I think it's helpful for us to continue to talk about what is a healthy relationship because we have so many examples of that um, in our media today, but it's hard to find. Well, the Columbus Ledger Inquirer recently reported on several cases that started as teen dating violence. So we have a look at the trajectory here because they later escalated into domestic violence-related fatalities. The victim in one of the cases, 18-year-old Destiny Virgin, died in September after her ex-boyfriend shot her repeatedly. Now, this was on a public road. Over the last decade, gunshot deaths have been the cause of death in 73% of Georgia's domestic violence death. So what is this relationship between guns and domestic violence among teens? I think that's huge with dating violence and domestic violence. And the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence is definitely doing their best to see what we can do about that relationship between gun violence and um, dating violence. But there's an accessibility to it. It sounds like from what we've been learning about those, including that victim's murder, that there's an accessibility factor to that. Young people are able to get their hands on guns um, for these fatal moments. Um, and they are getting it illegally, legally. They're able to find these guns and to use them in that capacity. So we're still doing our work to see what can we do to really limit that. Well, the specter of fear and violence together are a mighty combination. So if somebody does recognize that they're experiencing teen dating violence, uh, they might think, I can't break up with this person. Then things are really going to go badly for me or for my family or for others. How can, how can we diffuse that kind of a situation? Sure. I, the, the idealistic approach we want to start with is really just talking about what dating violence is so that more teens know what it is and know what to do to look for it. We also want to open those lines of communication 
depression. A lot of people experiencing dating violence and domestic violence are shamed and sometimes blamed for experiencing that violence. Sometimes you'll hear, well, what did you do to cause that? Or why did you make him so mad? You know how he is. I like to say, do your best to limit those conversations. It's actually not helpful. It's not helpful to that person trying to survive that dating violence that is happening to them. So as a friend, as a family member, do your best to listen and offer offer to talk about safety planning strategies with them. And for teens in particular, you want to talk about where they are with their perpetrator of violence, talking about safety planning in schools, in the community, in their place of work, things like that. How about in schools? Are teens taught to protect themselves from these kind of situations in sex ed curriculum in Georgia or other information on healthy and unhealthy relationships? Sure. There's um, a wonderful organization called the Teen um, Georgia Teen Advocates Network that actually hosts our youth and teen advocates that go in the community, specifically in schools, to talk about healthy relationships. This is a growing network um, of folks who are able to provide that healthy relationships curriculum in schools. Um, and you can definitely connect with us to learn more about it. Um, But in terms of safety planning in schools, really talk to that teen about what they're experiencing in terms of violence. If they know, hey, uh, safety planning strategies could be, oh, if you notice that my my shirt is hanging out of my locker and I'm not able to make it to third period, tell the school counselor. You know, just getting creative in terms of those strategies to talk about what that teen is experiencing and how they can provide communication um, so that they can be safe. One question uh, before we close. Legally, can a teen get a restraining order or press charges for domestic violence in Georgia? They can, but they can't do it alone. They need an adult that's over the age of 18 to petition on their behalf. Okay. So, you know, uh, as we're closing here, how do you get through to a teen on a topic like this when, as you said, they're becoming more independent and they want to believe they've got everything figured out? Relationship. I think that when you're able to tell a teen that you really care about them and that you want them to be safe, whatever that looks like, you're opening the door to have that conversation. Michelle White, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's my pleasure. Michelle White, Child and Youth Manager for the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And we would love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook group, TPB Radios On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. Coming up, Ocean Vung's new novel is part coming-of-age story. It's part immigrant narrative. And he's part of the Emerging Authors Track at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. Hear a fresh new voice in literature when On Second Thought continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Ocean Vung dazzled the literary world with his first collection of poetry, and his debut novel, On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous, was one of this year's most anticipated. It's written in the form of a letter from a character named Little Dog to his mother, a mother who can't read. Little Dog is small, half Vietnamese, and severely bullied by his schoolmates and physically abused by his PTSD-addled mother at home. 
He finds temporary relief in drugs and a teenage love affair and reckons with violence, loss, and belonging in the gorgeously crafted language of this novel. Ocean Vung is part of the MailChimp track of emerging authors at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. He'll be there on Sunday, September 1st. I spoke with him from New England Public Radio and asked him to read a bit from the book about why Little Dog's grandmother, Lan, gave him that name when he was born back in Vietnam. As you know, in the village where Lan grew up, a child, often the smallest or weakest of the flock, as I was, is named after the most despicable things. Demon, ghost child, pig snout, monkey born, buffalo head, bastard, little dog being the more tender one. Because evil spirits, roaming the land for healthy, beautiful children, would hear the name of something hideous and ghastly being called in for supper and pass over the house, sparing the child. To love something, then, is to name it after something so worthless it might be left untouched and alive. A name, thin as air, can also be a shield, a little dog shield. There is so much packed in that little paragraph about culture and power and notions of love and language and, and what a name carries. Is, is his name a shield? I think so. I mean, that's the intention. And I think, you know, particularly who names him? It's these women who have really nothing left to their name after being survivors of war, but they have the richness of the agency of language. And they decide to begin the life of this child is by protecting him with words and thin as air and yet palpable because they have to beckon that image and that name around him every time they call his name. Well, his grandmother's name is Lan that you mentioned. His mother's name, the novel is written to Ma. She's named Hong by her mother, Rose in English, Julie at the nail salons where she works. Mm-hmm. Is, is that part of the immigrant experience, these different identities? Is that what you're doing there? Yeah, moving through, being chameleons. And I think this book attempts to enact that very act of being a chameleon. It moves through different voices, different perspectives. There's first person, third person. It even collapses into poetry. And I think I wanted to take that on as a method of strength for literature. Often in fiction, we want cohesion. We want uninterrupted fluidity, a character uh, to be consistent. But I wanted this book to actually make itself out of fracture, to be broken as a way of going forward towards unity, just like poems. Yeah, well, you are a poet and a well-prized poet for your first collection of poetry, which was, you know, like unprecedentedly successful. I think it's about two-thirds of the way into the book. There is a series of chapters that are all in poems. Does that sort of reveal the limits of writing prose for you? I think I turned to prose because poetry was letting me off the hook too easily. I've been writing poetry for 10 years. Like you said, I wrote this first collection of poems, and I got too good at getting out of the poem when the heat was getting high. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the the, the scary questions come, and then I got too good. That doesn't mean... The poem is successful, but I got good at getting out. Hmm. I found the the side door of the poem, and I kept using it. And I thought, you know, if I'm an artist worth of my salt, I have to challenge myself. And the novel would not let me turn away. 
I had to tend to these characters' bodies day in and day out. I had to follow them. I had to put them through the world, put them into and out of weather, danger, and safety, and allow them to find joy on their own terms on American soil, which was something that is a larger question, a perennial question of mine. How do we live as Americans when we come out of a violent history? Mm. How do we be honest with that while still caring and tending for each other towards a future worth living? And one way to do that for Little Dog is to utter it. Often we think the future is in our hands, but Little Dog would say it's in his mouth, it's in our mouths. We have to speak the world we want to live in. But that begins with looking back at what we've done to each other. Well, a part of this is the way that his ma has moved through the world and his grandmother, Lan, have moved through the world, both of them in Vietnam. Lan leaves an arranged marriage with a man three times her age and becomes a a sex worker for the Mm -hmm. GIs, American GIs. Mm -hmm. And we learn that his ma, she leaves school at seven years old when her school is napalmed and she never goes back. Mm-hmm. So she never learns to read. And part of that power of language, of saying the future, of saying the words, is that he can read. He starts to learn to read at school and he tries to teach his mother what, what happens there. The hierarchies are reversed and then they fall apart. He tries to teach her the way his ESL teacher taught him. But for a son to teach a mother, it reversed this very tenuous hierarchy that they had, the only thing they had to identify each other as mother and son. And she couldn't have it. It was too rough. It was too disorienting. And she'd rather remain illiterate in order to remain his mother in the traditional terms. And it was this very fraught moment for them that they come close And then they come further away as a result of it, which I think is what relationships with our parents are. We don't choose each other. We come out of the womb, and there it is, and it's a bond that has to be negotiated for life. And sometimes personalities are at odds. Sometimes our parents have wounds that they haven't tended to, but then they they have to tend for us. They care for us. And I think it's something that I wanted the book to play out that regardless of who we are, love is about accepting and understanding where we've come from and not trying to change each other. But we do see her rage. We see her past come out. She slaps him many times. She throws a box of Legos, a gallon of milk at his head. But this is not the image of a one-dimensional, rageful abuser. Little Dog sees something else. He sees, what, what does he say, the war inside of her? How does he come to recognize the devastating hurt below her, her violence? He starts to see that he's not that different from her. He realizes that violence is in the legacy of the bodies of the 20 and 21st century, that all wars happen on both borders that men, when they go to Vietnam to fight in American men, they come back and they have PTSD. And Trevor's grandfather fought in Korea. His uncle fought in Vietnam. And to top that all off, there's toxic masculinity that they're negotiating. And I think he realized that him and his mother are not too far away, that they both come from this wounded past that lives in their genetics. We're talking with Ocean Vong about his debut novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. He is one of the emerging writers that is going to be highlighted at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September the 1st.
I'm glad you brought up men because mostly we spend a lot of time of Little Dog interpreting the world for these two women, his mother and his grandmother. But there is a lot about masculinity here. There's a a scene uh, when Little Dog's a little kid on the bus and and he gets slapped by a bully. And this kid, you know, calls him names and he observes he'd already mastered the dialect of their damaged fathers. And this is in Little Dog's lineage as well. His grandfather was a GI. Trevor, the boy he loves, his father was a veteran, as you mentioned, calls Little Dog China Boy. So the the legacy of the war is living in all of them in some kind of way. Yes. How does that how does yes. that stamp their experience? I think it stamps American life, American history, even the way we talk about our history, pre-war, antebellum, post-World War I, after Korea, before Vietnam. Our lives in this country is measured by violence and geopolitical rupture. And it is no wonder then that our specific bodies are inescapable from that history. We think it's all only political on large stage, on TV, but when we go home, the war follows us into the bedroom. It follows us at work. It inflects and it charges every interaction. And I think what I wanted to show in this novel, which is what I felt growing up in New England, was that in this crowded old place, this this northeast, all of these communities have lived and thrived for so long, and they're all bounded by war. And they're not that far apart. Some communities are segregated, but you cross the river and you're in an entirely different world, bounded by the same history. These people are all part of American foreign policy. Ultimately, that's what I wanted to unite these characters towards, that their history, they think they vote differently, they think they have different desires and ambitions, but in fact, they're bounded by American violence, and they can't escape it, even if they try to. Well, there is so much violence in the book, but there's also great tenderness. You know, there's yes. undoubtable. I don't see the the villain here, I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm thinking. That's a great observation. But I think there's also so much about class. I mean, they exist in the dollar stores, the, the corner store where Ma buys her Marlboro Reds and Hot Cheetos, and the nail yeah. salons where so many Vietnamese work. One of the things that Little Dog observes is that sorry is the most common word used among Vietnamese in America. Why this word? Why? How does that play out? You know, it's, I, I love writing about that section because it's a moment where you think Vietnamese nail laborers have no power. They rarely have citizenship. They're usually working on green cards. They're paid under the table. But in fact, when they're in that space... That nail salon becomes a language lab. They're changing the language in order to feed themselves. And so they use the word sorry in order to build rapport with their clients so that they can get the ultimate prize, a tip, Hmm. five, six, seven dollars. What happens, though, the cost of that, as Little Dog observes, is that the word sorry, the actual apology, becomes meaningless when the language translates and transfers and transforms to a different definition, a definition towards pandering and towards visibility, 
towards earning an income, a living, you lose your sorry. You lose your apology. And then so now how do you say sorry to each other? And I think that moment is actually the growth of the English language. It's a mapping of language in this language lab where these women and men working in the nail salons are inventing different meanings for the English language on their own terms. English is your second language, right? Yeah. So this is... This was a lab for you. I, I don't know how much of this is based on your own life, if your mother worked in nail salons when you were growing up. Yeah, the context of the book, I would say, if the book is a house, the foundation is based on truth. The context of Hartford, Vietnamese nail salon workers, tobacco farms, that's all part of my experience. The action and what they do is part of the imagination. But yeah, I grew up in nail salons. I grew up observing you know, this place of beauty and, and, and power, but also this place where children are raised. To me, it's actually incredibly American to have a culture built out of labor. It's no different than the coal mines, the railroads, the peach orchards. All of this is built on the backs of people working to sustain themselves and often breaking themselves to sustain their children. And it's a legacy of inheritance, and the inheritance of both trauma but also joy. We often talk about epigenetic trauma as a failed, doomed destination. But I hope to reveal in this book that as much as there's epigenetic trauma, there's also epigenetic strength. And you're absolutely right that the women also teach Little Dog to recognize beauty. Mm. And there's nothing more valuable than beauty when you're an immigrant and a refugee. You learn how important it is. It is not merely decorous. It is a lifeline. To be able to recognize it in the world can be a bomb that rescues you from one day into another. You have found so much beauty in language. I mean, the writing is so rich, the observations so spot on. And there are bits of Vietnamese in this book and in your poetry. Do you ever write in Vietnamese? I mean, do you think now in English? I've been thinking in English for a long time, mm. probably since I was six or seven. Naturally, the, the biggest irony of being a first or even second generation children of immigrants is that they propel you forward. They put you on the ship and they say, go, go. They blow wind in your sails, your parents and your community. Say, learn everything you can. And you think you're doing it for all of them, that they're with you. But one day you turn back to see where they are and you realize they're all the way back on that little island and they're barely visible and you've gone so far from them. And there's this big loneliness that happens and you realize the more English I know, the further I go from those who made me. And I tried to learn Vietnamese, to translate Vietnamese a few years ago, and I ultimately decided to stop. I wanted to be a Vietnamese scholar as well as an English one. But when I started to talk to my mother and my family, their education, their Vietnamese vocabulary and diction is only about the sixth grade, fifth grade level. And when I started to use words that they didn't understand, I panicked, I said, oh Lord, this is all we got, and I'm already leaving this behind. Every word I know in Vietnamese, every new word I, I acquire, I'll go further from them. So I said, not now. Maybe later, maybe in the next life. 
But now, this is all we got, and I'm going to stay here. I want my my Vietnamese to be the one that they know, and I want it to be on one platform, in one footing. Ocean Vung, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Virginia. Deep, deep pleasure. Ocean Vung, his debut novel is called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. He's going to be at the MailChimp track, that's Emerging Writers, at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September the 1st. We're going to leave you with one of the songs that was particularly resonant in the book. This is Ralph Stanley's This Little Light of Mine. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought.